Well, hey, everybody, we've got a couple of exciting updates to talk about. First, we're in the middle of editing a ton of brand new content for MXU Now and can't wait for you to hear from our friends, Chris Stevens, Corey Edwards, Daniel Cannell, and others. Um, our video team is hard at work making those ready to come out soon, so be on the lookout. And the other thing for MXU Now, uh, we have a new app and a new website experience that is coming within days, and we can't wait for you to experience some of the new features. Especially if you're a Teams subscriber, you are going to love what's coming your way. So be on the lookout for that as well. If you're not a part of MXU now, man, you got to sign up. Go to mxu.rocks, look up MXU now, and join the tribe because we've got a lot of great stuff coming. Meanwhile, here's the next podcast. You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Hey, what's up, everybody? Episode 38 of the MXU podcast is happening. We've had we've had like back to back to back. I mean, we're we're kind of getting good at this. I'm yeah. excited. We threw a mattress on that fire. Now it's really took off. <laughs> Have you ever thrown a mattress on a fire? No, but I needed one the other night because I took my family to a glamping place, which yeah. is basically not really camping. It's like a hotel in the woods, kind of. But it was great. But I went out there to start this fire, and uh, the little bit of kindling we had to get things going was. Not enough because it had rained a bunch that week and it was just, it was not great. I should have brought a mattress that I could burn. Isn't that the surefire way to make you feel like you've lost your man card when you can't start oh, a fire in front of your 100, wife and 100%, daughter? 100%. 100%. <laughs> especially when the bag of marshmallows is sitting right there for oh, s'mores. No. Yeah. So it burned long enough for us to cook some marshmallows, but I didn't get any dad time alone around the fire. And that was really, you know, having a good fire is one of my favorite things and I missed the boat. So how was camping otherwise? It was great. Yeah. Yeah. This uh it was just one night. You know, we wanted to try this place. And it's actually uh some friends of mine from Atlanta started this uh glamping place where they've got these big safari tents and there's like eight different campsites where you can go. And I mean, we had a king size bed and it looked like, you know That's not camping. This, I know it's not camping. It's like <laughs> king size bed and bunk beds and you know, furniture everywhere. It was it was really cool. But That's a, awesome. A, a cool experience. And it's right on the lake, so you could go and swim and kayak and do whatever. And it's Georgia, so, so some guy named Bubba comes around and brings you food and tucks you in at night? <laughs> no. Okay. No, 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 that's a different campsite. <laughs> okay. But, um, <laughs> so, if you, yeah, if anybody's interested, gaglamping.com. There's there you a free, go. There's a free promo for you, Nathan. Yeah. Um, anyway, awesome. Well, how have you been? I'm good. Um you know, it's crazy. We're getting ready to start school Yeah. Uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Stella's got volleyball tryouts next week, and then we're back at it. So I hope that the routine that is coming is going to be not herky-jerky, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of afraid it's going to be different than anything we've ever felt. That's it for is sure. going to be different. Speaking of things that are different, how about this? Uh, we at the church bought some new consoles. Really? Yeah, we bought a couple of the Yamaha PM5s. Okay, the new ones. Yeah, so I think we got the first two that a church got, and our friend Marcus at Skylark, he got one for something else. Uh, but we've had it a couple of weeks now, but we still haven't turned it on because the DSP is in limbo because of COVID. So, so it's just 
It's either in shipping somewhere in transit, still in Asia somewhere or on its way, or I, I don't know. I mean, it's crazy though, because we bought a console in, I think we paid for it in June and then it set on a truck at the Yamaha headquarters in Orange County, California for a long time because oh, their offices were closed and they couldn't get onto the truck to even receive it. So it hadn't even shown as, as received to the guys at Yamaha and God bless them. They're amazing. They were like giving us updates all along the way, but there's nothing we could do. Right. So, but we got the consoles. It's like, yay, we got them and we can't use them. Uh, <laughs> so, so the DSP for the PM seven is built won't in work or, Oh, that's right. The PM seven DSP is built in. So it's out of the whole Rivage family. Now, ten seven five three. the seven is the only one with it built in. Wow. Yeah. So you're like a kid waiting on Christmas morning and you have no idea when Santa's coming. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So wait a second. Did this happen to me as a kid? I think I got a Sega Genesis for Christmas in fourth grade with no video games. This did happen oh. to me. That, yes. And then a couple hours later, my parents were like, hey, go see what's in the mail. And they had put the game in the mailbox. But for a few hours, I experienced that sigh of like... You were the most disappointed child on the planet. Yeah, here's your Sega Genesis. Yeah, yay. No game. And then Mortal Kombat was in the oh. in the mailbox. You were never so happy to be able to rip someone's throat out in your life. No, as a fourth grader, that's exactly what you need. Absolutely. Is <laughs> the blood code for Mortal Kombat, which was, by the way, it was A-B-A-C-A-B-B. I still remember. <laughs> it's like a DNA, like genetic sequence. How cool would it be if console manufacturers put cheat codes on the desk? Oh, dude, like automatic snare drum EQ. And you, you've got to like <laughs> take your joystick and go up, down, right, left, right, up, down. Yeah. Or if it was like, oh, you can unlock the lexicon finally if you know this cheat code and you have to press the series of buttons, move these faders a certain way and it gets it to unlock. All right. Manufacturers, <laughs> if you're listening, that needs to be a feature. At least it at least needs to be in your April Fools ad for oh, next year. Digico will do this. They're yeah. they're the ones that'll do it cuz they have a cannonball on their uh console anyway. So That's right. So everyone at Digico, Kyle and Ryan if you're listening, Larson, get on it. Digico's next video cuz I loved <laughs> listen the video that they did for the release of the new desk. It was awesome. Was awesome. So you know, now that you've got all this downtime, I mean, Kyle doesn't have anything else to do. Might as well make videos right. of Digicode cheat codes. That would be amazing. Or like hidden compartments, like it was a uh, Mexican mule car. Like twist the glove box, <laughs> gear shifter into second, windshield wipers up, down, seat forward, and then a hidden compartment full of cocaine pops out. <laughs> but it could be like a compartment full of quarter-inch adapters. You didn't know it was oh, there. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, that's brilliant. This is where right, this so, is where we're at, Jeff. This is yeah. This is what it's come to. <laughs> it's time. To, I think it's time to move on. So why don't you tell us about our special guest? Yeah, our guest today is uh, someone who I've been following for a while. He and he loves education and training. He's a great front of house engineer. You may know him by his Instagram handle, Fixing to Get Mixing. Uh, it's Brad Divens, and he has partnered with Harmon 
and has been doing some classes. So we love him. We don't think he's a competitor to what we do. We think the more the merrier with this stuff. So we had a great conversation. He's a musician. He um he mixed for a band called Garbage, which for those of you that are younger and maybe have not heard of them, it was a very influential rock band from the late 90s, early 2000s. And their drummer, his name is Butch Vig, which you probably have heard of. So the guy he responsible produced, for producing produced everything, the Nirvana record that literally changed the music industry and music world, uh, the Foo Fighters, Smashing Pumpkins. Well, he was the drummer for the band Garbage. So we talk the back half of this conversation a lot about that, and it's really great. We talk a lot about um, he's using the real-time rack with his Avid SXL, um, you know, Shadow Hills plugins on your live console, which hasn't been able to be do, done before. So that's awesome. We talk about COVID. Wait, wait, wait. Let's not talk about what we're talking about. Let's just get to it and talk okay. about it. Okay, fine. Sounds good. Take it away. <laughs> Here we go. Well, we're so glad to be joined today by Brad Divens. And uh, Brad, for those of you who don't know Brad, is um, a mix engineer with a ton of experience, works with Enrique Iglesias uh, when he's touring, and has done a bunch of other stuff as well. So we're going to spend some time getting to know Brad and just uh, talking about his story and history as well as his workflow and preferred tools and get some insight into his uh, the method behind the madness. So welcome, Brad. We're really glad to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Brad, you have like one of the coolest monikers. Uh, people may know you as Fixin' to Get Mixin'. Yeah. So how did you come up with that name? And it's super cool. Okay, that came about, I was working with Garbage and we were rehearsing at uh, oh, somewhere in North Hollywood had a month of rehearsals. So every day I would come in, I'd be the first one in the rehearsal space. I'd track everything the day before, and then I'd come in the next day to work on the mix, sit down with Pro Tools, the console, and spin everything up. So one day I'm, I come in there, and the tour manager says, what are you doing in here so early? And I said, I'm fixing to get mixing. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was 2012. And then fast forward to, what, 2015, I thought, I was thinking, I need to start my company. What can I call it? Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, fixing to get mixing. I think that's it. I think that's I like the name. It. And it's, you know, it kind of stuck. And, you know, everybody refers to me as a hillbilly anyway half the time. So I figured it fits perfectly. That's awesome. Okay. So I get called hillbilly too. So are you from the South? No, I'm from McConnellsburg, Pennsylvania. Well, how'd that happen then? <laughs> Beats me. I mean, it's a two stoplight town, you know. Uh, I don't know, just out in the in the boonies. I maybe mean, it's, it's the it's the awesome beard. Maybe that's it. <laughs> that's funny. It's this is the quarantine beard. I'm just lazy. Yeah. yeah. I've seen I've seen a lot of people with quarantine facial hair and I, the and the self-imposed quarantine haircut. It's like, okay, where can I find my clippers and uh just buzz buzz the dome Exactly. To get... I'm working on quarantine sideburns, I think, too. <laughs> Those are pretty strong. <laughs> That's funny. Awesome. Yep. So, Brett, how did you find yourself into this crazy industry? And I actually read your Wikipedia page this morning. Oh. And you're one of the only guests that we've had that has their own Wikipedia page. Somebody started that. I didn't even start it. I've tried to edit it and correct it, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden it's up there. Change a few names to protect the innocent, right? maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
But so it sounds like your background came from starting in in the mu- musician side and producing records. Is that right? Yeah. Started playing. My first band I was in, I was 15. Uh, I was playing in a in a signed act at 20, a band called Kicks that was signed to Atlantic Records. Yeah. I joined them, made a record with them. And then a few years later, I joined the band Wrathchild. We got signed to Atlantic, did two records with Atlantic, then changed our name to Souls at Zero, did three records for an independent label. Wow. And then that was, I think that was 1995. So we're talking about, you know, from the time I'm 15, now we're going up to 1995. So Souls at Zero started to fall apart. Typical thing. We had got signed to a label. We put records out. We have way more passion about the music that we're performing and recording than the label does. Yeah. So it doesn't get pushed. And then a friend of mine had a band in Los Angeles called Back Alley Gators. And he said, why don't you come out to Los Angeles I'll give you some money. We'll record a record. We got signed. I'm like, you know, okay, let's go. What do I got to lose? Went out to Los Angeles, recorded a record with them. The record's done. The label says, well, we're not going to put this record out because we don't know what to do with it. Wow. And I'm like, okay, so here we are. The story of my life. It's, you know, it's like now I'm in Los Angeles with no gig and Uh, My manager at the time said, he's like, hey, have you ever thought about tour managing? And I'm like, no, but tour managing managing is pretty much babysitting grown men. That's how I look at that. Totally. (laughs) You know, and when we were when we were playing and touring, we couldn't always afford a tour manager. So I ended up being the designated guy that would take care of booking hotel rooms and getting paid and just all the responsible uh, responsibilities. All the grown-up details. Yes, fell on my shoulders. So I'm thinking, I could tour manage easily. So he's like, hey, this band, Agnes Gooch, they're going to be on Lollapalooza, second stage. Go meet the manager. I think think you're in. I think the gig will be yours. So I go into this meeting thinking, the whole time I'm thinking, I'm going to be a tour manager. Well, at some point during the manager, uh, at some point during the meeting, the manager says, can you mix? And I said, <laughs> of course he did. And I said, yes, <laughs> like w- without hesitation in a blink of an eye, I just said, yes. And then it all hit me like the, f- the feeling of what did I just get into? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like I'm just going to go down and mix somebody on a, you know, at a club gig or at some barbecue or, you know, because I, I had worked for sound companies, you know, on and off throughout my playing days, you know, as an odd job to pay bills and, you know, I knew the concept and I could get my way around, you know, a 12 channel PV or something. Yeah. But to walk up to a Midas XL 200 with a whole rack full of outboard gear, when I had never mixed anything like that on that level, you know, it's like at Lollapalooza at Lollapalooza. So I'll finish this story real quick. I was, so I got the gig. There's one club show in between leaving LA and the first Lollapalooza gig. So I'm thinking, okay, I got a club gig. I'll be able to figure this out. Well, we get to the club gig and it gets canceled. And now, <laughs> and now I'm thinking, okay, my first gig is going to be Lollapalooza, second stage. 
wow, what am I going to, oh my gosh. What, how am I going to pull this off? What am I going to say to the systems guy when I walk up there? Cause it, you know, I can't go up there acting like I know what I'm doing because I don't and I'll fail and I look like an idiot. So the walk to front of house, I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What can I say to this guy? And I get up there and I meet the guy and I'm like, Hey, you know, just so you know, I'm more of a tour manager than a front of house engineer, but I'm also a musician. And, you know, if you show me around, I think I'll be all right. And he's like, well, sure. And he just took me through and he's like, Hey, you know, this is, here's your input strip. And now there's 48 of them and here's outboard. You know, he just took me through and he helped me. That's great. You know, I guess it was me just coming clean, being honest because I needed the gig to pay the rent. I didn't want to get out there and just get fired right away. And that, cause that, that would have ended my, that would have ended those gigs for me. But within the first, I don't know, two or three years of doing that, I would go do the gig and then I would come back home and we would continue to showcase because I, my quest for rock stardom was not going to be ended, you know? And then somewhere along the way, I, I just realized I'm behind the audience instead of in front of the audience. I'm still being creative. It's still really enjoyable. Maybe this is where I'm supposed to be because it seemed like the gigs just kept coming. Like I would finish one tour and somebody would say, hey, you want to come mix this band? So I went from Lollapalooza second stage. Then I went, I did OzFest, you know, a couple bands on side stage OzFest. And then three years into it, I'm working with Linkin Park. Wow. And it was all, I just kept saying, yes, yes, I'll come mix your band or I'll come tour managing mix. I just took every gig that was offered. And at some point I just realized this is where I'm supposed to be. I still love playing music, but I didn't enjoy smashing my head against the wall in the same spot over and over again. Because, you know, you you can have all the passion for your music that you're creating, but if somebody else doesn't believe in it the same that you do, the business just takes all that passion and creativity right out of you. Like you spend nine months making a record to put it out and watch it just get dropped on the ground and kicked across the street. Yeah. Yeah. Especially back then, right? Because the labels were making so much money. They were saying yes to a ton of stuff, funding yeah. projects, and then they get turned in. And then the A&R gives it to marketing and then they're like, well, what do we do with that? Like you said. Right. And then exactly. a band gets shelved and they've got five more records to do. And then they're like, are we stuck for 10 years? It was yeah. a really weird time back then, I'm sure. It was very strange. Yeah. And, and you'd have A&R guys get fired or let go. And it's like, well, all of a sudden, that person that's at the label that is into your band is gone. Yeah. The one guy that was advocating for you is yeah. now... And on to something else. And when that happens, you you're done. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're already selling millions of records and you're already established. Right. You know, we were kind of, I think, kind of at the tail end of when a label would actually sign a band and nurture them just a little bit. It's not like the seventies or eighties where, you know, you could put out five records before one, you know, was the one that took off for your career. Right. They would sign you actually as a development deal and yeah. work with you as an artist and help you with songs and help you with, you know, just chemistry of the musicianship and all that. But those days were 
Yeah, those days are almost, go- if not over by then. Yeah, and I think they're completely gone now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nobody ever signs a band just because they think, man, this band's got potential. Let's watch them grow. That right. doesn't ever happen because they're just thinking, I just need three singles that are right. going to make us a lot of money, and I don't care about the other seven songs on the record. Right. Right. I told somebody this story a while back, you know, Kansas, two records in and has nothing. All of a sudden, Dust in the Wind hits, and then they become Kansas. Right. But it was because the label said, no, these guys, there's something here worth investing in, and we're going to let them do what they do for a while and just sort of see what happens. And then it finally happened. Like you're saying, though, that never happens anymore. Yeah. Cheap Trick was another band. Took until Live Budokan for that band to break. Yeah. So... Yeah, it just got to be extremely frustrating and and you know, I got into the into playing music because I loved it and enjoyed it and never cared about if I ever made a dime. But at some point you want to see that you want to see your dream grow. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it, yeah. the the business just took all the, you know, it took all the fun out of it. Wow. You know? So, we tell we tell guys all the time about how important we think it is to approach mixing as a musician, or at least from a musical standpoint. So talk for a few minutes about how your musicality as a player kind of informs the way you approach a mix and, you know, the actual craft of what you're doing, but also in the way you communicate with the band and how you guys kind of talk about parts and what's working and what's not working. Well, I definitely think that being a musician has helped me to, you know, become a a better mixer because a lot of those gigs in the beginning the band that would hire me would know of the band that I was in. So right away I had the in with them. Like, you know, I wasn't that great of a mixer in the beginning. And, but the fact that I was a musician, I could speak the language and and they felt like I was one of them. And I was always going to look out for them and the music because that's the most important thing is how your band comes off to the audience. And I never, I didn't come from the technical side. My my skill and, and how I mix is has always been approached from a playing perspective. So when I'm mixing, I feel like I'm performing. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's always been, I mean, I guess you have to look at things and you have to make sure you're not clipping and this sort of thing. But it's, I feel like I spend way more time just listening. I took a gig with Cindy Lauper. And one day I got a call from the monitor engineer and he's like, are you ready for this? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, he's like, well, you know, Cindy's, she's going to come out and tell you how to mix. And, you know, her bass player may have some, you know, things that he wants you to do. And, and I had a meeting with them in their first rehearsal up in New York. And I never saw anybody come to front of house. Nobody ever said a word to me. Huh. And I don't know exactly what I said. Other than, you know, I'm a musician before I'm a mixer. Hmm. And I just think that that's always, that's always been the thing that, that I think people have appreciated about my ability and what I do. Yeah. It was like, you basically said, Hey, I care about the things you care about. Yeah. And I'll take the time to walk up on stage and, you know, put the mics exactly where I want them to be or stand in front of the guitar rig and listen to it because it doesn't sound right at front of house and work with, you know, because I want it to be the best it can be. Because like I say, I feel like I'm part of that. 
Yeah. And that's what I would do when I'm playing in my band. I want to make sure that everything sounds good. Right. Why wouldn't I do that for the band that I'm mixing? I care about, I care about what the audience thinks and I want the audience to enjoy the show. I don't want to see people holding their ears or yelling at me. They, they can't hear something. You know, I don't want that to happen. Yeah. That's great. So what have you, what do you do in the cases where that maybe not be the case with the band? Cause you've worked with so many bands. I'm sure you'll, you've run into this and obviously you don't have to say any names, but when you're working for a band and it's like, they don't give a rip what I'm doing out here. And it's like with you, when you do care about something and it's like, Hey, I want to come listen to the guitar and you're just not getting the same care the other way. Like, how does that affect you? Well, it's, it's a bit frustrating. Yeah. And it makes me like, I spent nine years working with a band where I know they cared about what I did, but some things in the performance led me to believe that some people didn't really care. Uh, but it never stopped me from, you know, trying different things to achieve what I was hearing in my head, what should be coming across. Yeah. It, you know, but then at some point I realized like I would go through different microphones and different mic pre's and I would like literally spend the entire set chasing the artist. Even though there's times when people say, man, what do you just let it go? They don't care. Why should you? I'm like, because I'm here doing a job. I care. Yeah. I care about what I do. I have a passion for this. It's not my job. It's what I enjoy doing. Yeah. I started playing music when I was 10 years old. It's, it's, it's a part of me. The music yeah. is, it's in me and it's a part of me. That's great. It's really cool. So you're also really big in education. So a lot of people may know you and have seen you um, advertise some of your seminars, classes. I'm not sure what you call them, but you're very passionate about music. And then now you're passing that torch on. So talk to us about the classes that you've been doing the last few years. Well, I had this idea many years ago about you know, what can I do at the gig? I have so much time during the afternoon. There should be something I can do. And I thought, why couldn't I do a class here and have like 10 people come in and we could sit around the desk and, but there was too many, you know, logistical nightmares involved with that from the yeah. band to management, to security in the venue. And I think it was, I think it was 20. Yeah. It was probably in the spring of 2017. I started striking up a relationship with JBL. And one day uh, we were just, we were having lunch and I was talking to the guy and, and I'm like, and I just decided to throw my idea out there. I'm like, Hey, I got this idea. I want to do a class. I want to call it fixing to get mixing. You know, I want to make it about mixing because I had done a couple of things for waves yeah. where I had three different acts, but that was about plugins and I didn't want to make it about gear. I wanted to make it about the creative process and how I, figured out my process coming from not knowing anything to where I am now, you know, and JBL was like, well, I think that's a great idea. You know what? Let's run with that. And it took a little bit to get it going. And, you know, at first it was like, Hey, you can use whatever, use your console, use whatever you want to use. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, now I want to make this about mixing. And I want to make my point is, you should be able to sit down at a Mackie with some Behringer comps and gates yeah, 57s and 58s on stage. And you should be able to put your mix together regardless yep. Yep. of what you have. So the whole, the, the whole premise of putting the, the class together is 
this is my story. And I begin with telling, you know, how I ended up being here, which is totally by chance and yeah. saying yes and taking the, the leap of faith to know that I, you know, I had the, the confidence in myself that I thought I could pull it off. It's designed so that whether you're thinking about mixing or you are a mixer or you're a pro mixer, I think everybody can get something out of it. Because I will talk a lot about, you know, what mixing means to me. And it's way more than just knobs and faders and, you know, green and yellow lights blinking. It's about the audience and the artist and the, the creativity of putting it together and listening. And, and I feel that a lot of the younger people, the emphasis has become focused on gear. And, oh, I can't make, I need eight plugins for this. And I need, I can't mix without this. And it's like, no, you should. I grew up learning how to mix on a PV because my band bought one. Yeah. And we would go and rent it to the local band play it. And that's all we had. That's all I knew. So when I designed it, I thought it's got to appeal to people that don't even know about mixing, but yet they're going to get something out of it. And so I use different artists that I've worked with, three different, com- three completely different styles of music. I use Garbage, Him, and Enrique. And then I explain how this process works, whether it's, you know, a rock band yeah. or a Latin pop artist. Yeah. And so far, the reaction has been really good. It seems like a lot of the things that I talk about are very simple. And, and like, I think that people should just know it. Yeah. But, but they don't. No, I know. <laughs> and it's yeah, like, that's one of the biggest takeaways from our stuff was, well, when we, when we did a, a, the first couple events and people would ask like, what's the biggest takeaway for people usually? And our answer is something like high pass filters, <laughs> gain right. structure, mic yes. placement. Yeah. Signal flow. Yeah. Yeah. All <laughs> the basic things. Yep. Yeah, before you reach for the EQ, why don't you adjust the high pass filter? Because chances are you can clean it up. And why don't you pick the right mic? Yep. And put it yep. in the spot where it sounds good to you when you walk up on stage. Yep. That's another thing. That's the last thing I do before I ever do anything in front of house is I I'm on stage placing all the microphones. Do you still do that on the these big tours? You put the mics where you want them? Yep. I mean, we have a guy that will put him up there in place, and then yeah. I go up and fine-tune it and put it exactly where I want. Even though I know I could probably just, you know, walk away and leave it where it is, but it's yeah. the peace of mind that I know that microphone is exactly where I want it to be. Yeah. And then if it doesn't sound right for some reason, you know that it's... It's not the placement. It's not the placement that, yeah. Yep. That's that's cool. Yeah. I mean, you'd the number of times that I've actually gone up on stage and found weird things like condenser mics pointing up to the sky. Yeah. The old drum overheads that are actually upside down is one of my favorite, uh, <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite tricks on a festival. Some, some festival volunteers like I, I did it, man. It's great. And then you walk behind them and it's like, no, not so great. Yeah. I mean, I was doing one class for, for uh, somewhere and I think it was one of the Enrique tracks. And at the end of it, the, the first question was, how do you know how to put that together? Wow. And my answer was, I listen. You just listen to the music. Yeah. 
you know, I, I was watching this thing last night, this uh, documentary on Rick Rubin called Shangri-La, and mm-hmm. I only saw the first episode. But somebody was saying how Rick has gone from the Beastie Boys to Run DMC to Slayer to Adele. And what did he say? And my wife was like, it's just music. Yep. That's all it is. There's no reason why you can't work with many different artists. That's good. I mean, that's another thing I've been really fortunate in is that I've never been pigeonholed as being a rock guy. Like I am from a rock background and my approach to mixing is always to put the rock spin on it, but never got pigeonholed into, you know, oh, you mix, you know, Linkin Park or you mix Cindy Lauper or Bob Seger, which I really appreciated because I like mixing all the different styles. Yeah. So how did you end up with Enrique? Enrique came about, I got a Facebook message from his producer. Huh. Wow. And the whole, yeah. And the way that they, that he found me was I had done the waves video for garbage and, and his, his producer's thing was, he's, he's like, you worked with garbage. They're a band with tracks. Enrique's a band with tracks. We feel that you'll understand the concept of working with the two elements. Wow. Which I never really found an issue with because like you, like I said, you just listen to everything and you want to hear it all. So it's all going to be in there. Yeah. The tracks are just another part. It's, it's just it's another not, part. Yeah. It's a part that's meant to be there. And I had to audition for the gig. And the first and the two audition gigs were one was a wedding that was held in a chateau in the south of France. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and it was not about the music. It was not about me being where I needed to be in front of the PA. It was about tuck this guy back here in the corner because at those type of gigs, they don't want to see any of the workers. Yeah. And so I'm back off. I'm like in the corner and the PA is like way over there. Yeah. You know, but I had requested a pair of near fields. I had done my homework. I listened to the music. They had sent me, you know, a a show file and some Pro Tools tracks and I got on a profile and I spent the time dialing things in. And at, at no point in the process of spinning up the mix did I ever think, wait a minute, this is Enrique. This is like, I mean, of course, I realized this is totally different than anything I've ever done before. But I never thought about that in my approach. I hmm. mixed it like I would mix garbage or, you know, Motley Crue. Yeah. The, the principle was the same. I wanted the band to have the power and the impact of the live performance, but with all the subtleties of the record. And I never changed my style. I didn't put Enrique way up over the top of the band. I set him just right above. And a couple of weeks later, I got the call that, hey, we want you to come do the tour. You know, wow. I, and, I, and I was in China finishing a gig, literally got home. And a couple of days later, I went to Miami for rehearsal. And I think I had maybe two days of rehearsal to track everything and then come in on the off time and get the mixed out in for the first show. That's how quick it was. Wow. That is wild. But but it was so crazy because that morning I remember waking up and I said to my wife, I'm like, you know, I said, the phone doesn't ring anymore. I don't get emails about other gigs and, you know, but I'm, I'm content with what I'm doing. So if this is what it's going to be, I'm cool with that. And then I open up my laptop and I see this message from Carlos Palcar. Hey, I'm Enrique's producer. And I'm just, I'm like, 
man, yes, I want it. I want to audition. Are you crazy? Yeah. You know, and you got to go to a big wedding in the south of France, which nothing wrong with that. No, it was crazy. And it was just, <laughs> yeah, like I say, I was way off in the corner. So I had to keep walking out into the middle of the, of the floor to listen to what the PA sounded like. And, and then the other gig was for a record company. Uh, it was like promo giveaway thing where there was like 150 people in this little bar. And I think it was maybe like four DV Dosk on the downstage edge with a couple of subs underneath. It was like no PA hardly at all. Yeah. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Because I've already mixed in every possible scenario that I could be in <laughs> coming from, you know, way back when I said yes the first time until now. It's those kind of gigs that make you appreciate the bigger ones when they come along. Well, and I think it's a lot of it has to do too with way back when having a 12 channel PV in a, in a van going to a club gig. That's, that's how you learn. Yeah. And another thing I like to say is I'm just going to turn the knob until I like the way it sounds. Yeah. Because I think that's what you do. Yep. Absolutely. I had a, uh, I attended this class at my, one of my only college experiences was not attending the college, but going to this class, this guy taught in Knoxville at university of Tennessee. And he's this old mastering guy. His name is Seva. He's not that old. If he's listening, he's probably pissed right now, but he helped design L1 like he was one of the first guys to get his hands on that plug-in oh wow but anyway through this class he said hey there's only three rules of audio the first one is put the right microphone in the right place the second rule is turn the knobs until it sounds good and he said now the third one is the most important and it's the hardest it's stop yeah it's like learning when to stop turning those knobs is actually like when you become an expert that's true Exactly. And it doesn't always matter what something sounds like soloed. It can sound perfect when it's by itself, but it's when it's with the mix. And that's another thing that I emphasize in the class as I'm going through things. I'm like, okay, now let's put this in the big picture because it's always about the final product. It's not about the kick drum sounds amazing. Yeah, but what about the singer? Yeah. You know, what about the guitar and the keyboards? It's, it's all of it. Yeah, or the tracks. Yeah, all of it is important. That's great. But you'd be surprised the amount of people who don't really think that way. Right. And the times that you've seen a show where the kick drum is louder than everything else, and it's, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. Was the kick drum the lead singer? Right, they didn't pay to hear a kick drum. No. So you mentioned the profile earlier. Are you still an avid guy? Do you have a S6L kind of as your your main? That's what I'm on at the moment, the S6L, Yeah. yeah. And that kind of came about, you know, because with Enrique, we go to so many different places. We found the profile everywhere. Mm-hmm. My thought was most everybody that bought a profile was going to buy an S6. So we'll find it everywhere. That's really what it comes down to is being able to find the same gear everywhere we go. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of those unique artists that, like you said, you may find yourself in South America one week and then in Asia the next, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, there was one two-week stretch where we were in India one day and Sri Lanka the next. All shows back-to-back in different countries. Yeah. So you've got to be able to walk in and just have it ready to go. Yep. Wow. Of course, sometimes you don't always find it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But. (laughs) You definitely want to go check the mic placement. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we did a gig on a yacht one time. 
was wow. a, it was a profile. It was easy to put up there and it worked and you do the show. There's a lot of great mixing consoles out right now though. Yeah. Oh yeah. So many good ones. And PA too. And I was just thinking about that when you said like about the kick drum, how many shows have you been to when the kick drum's been looks crazy loud with how powerful subwoofers are getting. And well, and even the main PAs now go down to 40 Hertz or lower in some yeah. cases. It's so easy to just, you know, dime the low end and then all you hear is the kick drum. But I do think too, maybe it's just me or it's wishful thinking. I feel like people are doing that less with the kick drum. And they're they're finally realizing like the kick drum is probably the easiest input on your console to get to sound good. Yeah. You know, there's still a ton of like, yeah, I need eight plugins for my kick drum, but <laughs> I am hopeful that that's kind of going away a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. I hope so. I'm going to be real curious to see what happens when we come back to live shows. If, if things might kind of start a little softer, like if people are going to be just, we've been away for six months or a year or whatever it ends up being. So we're going to be good, like right at 95 a weighted and just kind of let it cruise for a while. You know, I'm perfectly fine at 98. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy there between 98 and 101. Because my crowd is at 110 sometimes. Right. Especially in Asia or South America. I'm never going to compete <laughs> with that. Yeah. No, I think we're going to find that even 100 A-weighted is really loud. Yeah. It's going to be like, whoa. I wonder about like all the people like me that said yes to a gig and just started out and got in the van and trailer. Like, What happens to all those people that are... You know, we're kind of getting their feet wet in the business and this yeah. whole thing shut down. And where did they go? Like, yeah. they couldn't survive. No. Probably They probably had to go get day gigs. Are they going to come back? I don't know. Probably not. Well, and we're not. I mean, obviously, we don't know what it's going to look like even. You know, I heard a report on the radio the other day about smaller venues. If, if they don't get some serious help, you know, if you're not a Live Nation type venue, are those small clubs and theaters even going to be around? Yeah. And those, it's, that's what it's crazy. That's what everybody lives off of. Yeah. Right. It's so many people's bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah. No, but not everybody can go out and play, you know, Staples Center or, you know, those big festivals. Right. That's very few. So, what are you hearing right now as far as getting started back up? I mean, you're, you work for an artist that's international. Are they even thinking about reschedules yet? Well, they rescheduled everything to next year. Yeah, okay. There was a couple shows in May that got put to next May. Yeah. And then the tour we were to do with uh, Ricky Martin that was supposed to start here in September is now next September. Okay. So it's just like as if 2020 just didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, I think that probably is the easiest thing for, you know, like Live Nation to do is just say, okay, everything that was this year, it's next year, same time. Yeah. How would you ever try to reschedule all those tours? Yeah. Other than just say, okay, next year, this right. same time. Yep. That's the easiest, most sensible thing to do. Then you can only just hope for the best. Yeah, no kidding. Even I even wonder about that. And I try not to think about it because I can't I can't do anything about it. Yeah. Well, when we first got on the call. You said, you know, how important it's been for you to kind of stay out of your own head on some of that stuff. So talk for a minute about what you're doing 
instead. Like, so how do you not try to go down that rabbit trail? So I'm doing for those that. Of you guys who can't see, he's pointing <laughs> to his uh, home studio and guitar rig, and there looks looks to be some really awesome guitars back there. Yeah, a so. bunch of Les Pauls. Yep. Yeah, Les Pauls got some Hamer Thunderbird basses back there. Nice in my little room, which you can't see either. By the ISO room, there's some Marshall amps and cabinets, and, and then around here is my the front end. Oh, uh, I love it! That's with awesome. A couple of Ravens and some JBL monitors and Pro Tools and warm audio gear. So you're doing a lot of tracking and mixing. That's you know that's where I'm find myself now. Yeah, I have a little great. bit of work each week, and it's enough that. When those guys come by and we just start making music, it's like, this is why I started. Yeah. It's fun. I'm just tr- I'm having a good time again. And then I think about, am I, when, when am I going to mix that big show? Because that, that also became a part of me. Right. Yeah. That's the thing is that for me, it's never been a job ever. I never looked at what I do as a job. And so now that I can't do it, it's like I'm missing a part of myself. Yeah. It's gone. When do I get to get back to that part of me? Yeah. yeah that's that's great. So um let's let's move away from fatalistic <laughs> thinking for a second. So uh, other than the console, what um what other gear is in your rig? Like you'd mentioned wave stuff, obviously use plugins, but I've also seen UAD stuff on your website. So just talk about some of the tools that you really enjoy using and how that impacts your approach. Yeah. You know, I first got uh, turned on to the real-time racks by JBL and I had had my desk dialed in and it was before we started the the very, uh, I think it was the second Pitbull tour. So they sent me a couple of real-time racks and all I did was implemented it, implemented them in to my mix bus and the groups. And that's what I changed. And when I changed that, I'm like, it just all of a sudden my mix went from being, it was like, you know, 3D to 4K or something. It's just the imaging and mm. things that I were was hearing before was now all of a sudden there was like more space for it. And the mix just became more open. Huh. And so I find myself carrying that a lot. And that was with nothing on input channels changing. It was just groups and buses. buses. Yeah, and I was doing, because I had come from the profile, for me, the profile was a desk that allowed me to create whatever type of desk I wanted to mix on. And that's how I approached it. Mm -hmm. You know, so my drums would be SSL and my guitar would be Neve or the bass would be API. Yep. So when I got on the S6, I just continued with that same philosophy because it worked and I liked what it did. And then I started implementing the UA stuff on the groups. And once I started hearing some of those things, then I went back to my inputs. I opened myself up to experimenting more, you know, with some of the plug-in alliance stuff, which I think is fabulous. Yeah. You know, that stuff yeah. to me is, there's some things they make that nobody can touch that stuff. Yeah. What's that? Um, there's an EQ. We, we've talked about this recently. But the high end on it, it's called like air or something. What is that EQ? It's like multiple. Oh, the Mog. Yes. Mog EQ4. That's the amazing. Mog, yeah. 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 I've watched people use it in studio and what it'll do to even just like the left or right. I can't imagine doing that on a big PA. Yeah. 
It's how incredible. Are, are you using that plugin? That plugin, for some reason, in the UA platform, well, you cannot assign it in stereo. It's only mono. Uh-huh. So I so I have used it on my drum groups. My big thing with drum groups is is a uh, it's the what is it? It's by Plugin Alliance. It's the Vertigo compressor. Okay. Followed by the Mog EQ4. Yeah. On both the main drum group and the parallel group, and then you open up. I think I the air band I go either between five or ten k and just go like maybe plus four on it. Mm-hmm. And man, it just opens up. I mean, I think cymbals and hi hat are one of the most difficult things to get to sit good in the mix. Oh yeah. A lot of times, either you can't hear them, yeah. or they're harsh, so you just end up turning them down because you just can't get them to sound right. Yep. But for some reason. Right. Once I discovered the processing the drums on the group, you know, uh-huh. and looking for the global picture of the drum kit, and I realized, hey man, I can open up the top end. And all of a sudden it just starts to shine and there's this really nice brilliance that comes across. And it's pleasing to listen to. Right. That EQ is fantastic. Yeah. I gotta figure out how to start using that. Uh you can't use it in Waves new super rack, but you can use it in multi-rack. Yeah. Yeah. So that sucks. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what about your left, right? What are you doing on the left, right with the UA stuff? The left, right, I do Shadow Hills mastering, uh, mastering compressor. Yeah. Followed by Brainworks Digital V3, and that's for the imager. Mm-hmm. And then into Fatso. Okay. And followed up by, I think live, I end up using the U, the Universal Audio limiter in the. When I do my classes, I I use the uh, the Oxford Sonox okay limiter because mm-hmm. of the DSP limitations with uh, with the S6 being at ninety six k. Yeah, that e- eats up the DSP pretty fast. Yeah, but when I do the classes, it's on the Soundcraft and it's forty eight k, so I'm able to you know no, I see use a different limiter. But that Sonox limiter is amazing as well. But the thing is. You know, you say, well, you got four plugins on your mix bus. That's a lot. But I could turn them all off and the mix still sounds good. Right. It's when you turn them on and it's those, it's each yeah. one does a little bit of something. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Shadow Hills is the, the compressor that kind of just tightens it up a little bit. And then the V3 gives me the imaging. You know, and Fatso is another bit of just takes the digitalness away and just warms it up a tiny bit. And the Fatso, that's the modified distressor. Yeah, more or less. It's by uh, Empirical Labs. Yeah. Yeah. That thing is really cool as well. So there's so much to do with that thing that I haven't really figured it all out. Right. I just find, you know, I I really do. I'm not afraid to say, I don't know what this does, but I like the way it sounds. And when yeah. I turn, I turn the knob and this sounds really good to me. Yep. Yep. And I will say that in my class. Yep. And I know not, like with the Shadow Hill stuff and even the UA, I've found that with those just inserting them, you notice a difference. Yeah. It's just yeah. running through that that circuit. Mm-hmm. Back in the profile days, that's how I always felt about the crane song Phoenix, where it was like you just put Phoenix on it and turn the knob a little bit, and I can't tell you what it's doing, <laughs> whether it's luminescence or phosphorescence or whatever the whatever the essence was yes, but it was, it was like essence just magic i know i use that thing on the profile a lot as well 
Yeah. And I still use it on the S6 on my hi hats and overheads because that luminescent setting. Yeah. It just makes the top end nice. How about any of the lexicon stuff you using that? I'm using it in the studio. Okay, yeah. The four I got the 480. Yeah. Yeah, I like the 480 a lot. Yeah, who doesn't? I can't get away from that. Yeah. You use it for vocal verb? I use it for vocal verb, for drum verb, sometimes for we're recording a lot of sax on these tracks that I'm doing now. I put it on the sax as oh, well. Yeah. Put a plate on the sax. Yeah. Yeah. I got, you know, some of the warm audio microphones, the DPA mics, got a couple of warm audio uh, mic pre's, the 412 and the WA273 mm-hmm. and their WA2A. I've got, all, I'm going back to the lexicon. I wasn't done. Uh, okay. The, uh, I'm so, <laughs> I'm such a reverb junkie. Um, I've got all the IRs from the 480. What are some of the presets you like for drums and vocals? Ah, uh, the drums. Oh, what is it? Everybody get out your notepad. I know. <laughs> I think I default to, oh, what is it? I want to say it's fat plate. And yeah. then I just adjust yeah. the parameters to taste. There's there's a, only a couple. It's fat plate. I can't remember what the other one was called. There might've been like a, one called music club or something that I okay. really enjoyed, but it was a di- whole different sound. Yeah. But I tend to gravitate towards the plates. Yeah. Like, me too. The majority of the time, because for me, they sound the most natural. Yep. The, the instrument sounds like it's just in the space where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same with the vote. I like that fat plate. A plate. Okay. That's a new one. I haven't, I don't know about this I one. I think it's a plate. I don't know. I'll just open it up and fat plate or whatever it is. Okay. Let's adjust the time and I'm good. Maybe roll off the, you know, the low pass filter on it or something. Right. Totally. That's a good reverb. I carried when I, I did Bob Seger and I carried that one. Yeah. That was, that was it for reverb for me. Yeah. For the whole show. Wow. One, one side for his vocal and the other side for drums. And that was it. That's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. I think it was that and a delay. And there was no other effects on that on that tour. So it was mono too. If you're just using one side, yeah, it was mono. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. So mixing in arenas and reverb, I don't. I feel like there's not. There's never a good answer for anything with audio. But for that, like, do you put enough vocal on the reverb where you can hear the reverb in the arena? Because that's a ton. My philosophy on reverb in the arena. I'm already I'm already in a space that has reverb. Yeah. The majority of the time there's a little bit of reverb on the drums. Mm-hmm. And the minute I can start to hear it over top of the room, yeah. I I turn it down a little bit because I don't want to hear that other reverb in yeah. the room. Yeah. Vocally, I don't think there's not much reverb on Enrique at all. Yeah. The only time maybe there's some verb on him is when he goes to C stage and it's the acoustic number. Yeah, sure. But even then, the minute I start to hear it, it sounds like too much. It doesn't sound natural in the space. Right. That's the whole thing with effects, I think. Yeah. I'm very I don't use a lot of effects. You know, delay a little bit of pitch on his ver- on his vocal and verb mm-hmm. on the drums. That's well, kind of it. I will say you post sometimes some I guess it's just iPhone recordings last year from the Enrique tour from front of house. Yeah. You win the award for best sounding iPhone mix. <laughs> it is unbelievable. So everyone go to 
Brad's Instagram and watch those. It sounds so dang good. I wonder what those were. I don't know. Because I know I've done several. There was one, there was a couple that DPA brought out a thing called the device. That's a great, that's a great little thing. I'm using that now for my microphone for this podcast. Yeah, as as am I. It's about the size of a silver dollar, if you guys yep. are old enough to even know what that is. Yeah. I know what a silver dollar is, Jeff. <laughs> silver dollar pancake at IOP. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the whole thing with the, I don't know, I just, I don't know what the secret is. I guess if the mix sounds good in the room, then it should sound good when people record it on the iPhone. Yeah. Well, it's a really good way to test because everybody's doing that anyway. So yep. you might as well capture it and make sure that it what they're getting and posting to their social feed exactly. is actually worth worth posting. So that's... Yep. Are you finding now that some of your artists listen back to some of the stuff they find on social? Well, you know, I was told when I got the Enrique gig that he will go on and watch the show. Yeah. Okay. I've been there six years. He's never said one word to me about anything. Wow. Other other than don't forget my delay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I don't I love delay. I will not forget your delay. Yeah. That's great. So, are you are you recording uh a two mix every night? Do you have to send stuff to broadcast? Are you trying to are you worrying about that as a bus that's going to something that might have some more effects or is it just your front of house mix and done, you know, one and done? The only time I have to hand stuff over is to the drummer, and that would be stems, because sometimes some of the musicians will have to sub out to another musician, and he'll want to give somebody the recording so they can learn the parts. Uh huh. I don't. Uh, I've given, I've given Enrique rehearsal stems from when I think we were getting ready to start a tour, and we were in Miami and recording. I would record, and then. But I don't do anything different to the left, right. It's like whatever's coming out of the near fields is what's getting printed to left, right. And that's what I give Enrique. And that's what's going to the PA too. That's what's going to the PA. Yeah. I mean, I spend, a, I spend a lot of time tweaking things in the near fields. Yeah. Because I, my philosophy is that when my inputs are dialed in the way I want to hear them, my desk will translate on any PA. The only thing I have to worry about is tailoring the PA to sound like I want it to sound. Okay, yeah. there. that was my question was, then are you going for a more reference sound out of the PA as opposed to a big haystack? I hate the haystack. Okay. I'm not a big haystack fan. I like all of the PA. Yeah. I remember when I when I did Garbage, the, one of the, in the summer, the very first run of dates in Europe was in, was festivals. And I carried a profile and a lake and I had the tablet, and I set my outputs up on matrices for left, right, sub, front fill. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say nine times out of ten, the sub matrix was turned down every time, at least minus ten. Yeah. I'm like, I don't because the band before me. I mean, I'm I don't have any reference. All I know is what I'm hearing from this guy before me. Yeah. yeah. I didn't get to hear the PA with my system music. The right. my only reference is going to be when Garbage's intro begins. When that starts, I know what I need to do. So they'd roll that intro, then you'd grab the tablet and go, I got to get this as close <laughs> to what I know as possible before. I'd grab the tablet, I'd grab the, you know, matrixes, and usually by the, you know, somewhere in the first song, I got it sitting where I need it to be. That's awesome. But I don't understand 
the philosophy behind so much emphasis on the sub base in the PA. Yeah. Well, it's a great way for a, a mixer that's not very good to come across like, well, we have some impact. Right. Exactly. And the band, if the band sucks, we'll just turn the 808 and the kick drum up and you can kind of hear a vocal. Yeah. I want to see a nice, you know, nice little tilt. I don't want to see that big hump. Yeah. Between 40 and 80 or whatever it is, you know, yep. and, and then it just falls off from there. It's like, I, I like all the PA. When somebody asks me, how do you like the PA tune? I'm like, so it sounds good. And it's just a little <laughs> bit of a tilt. I don't want a ton of sub. Yeah. And the minute I watch somebody tune the system, like when we do these one-offs, I know right away I'm going to ask them to turn the sub down. Yeah. Wow. Let's go in there and turn it down because that's that's not – are you familiar with Enrique's music? <laughs> Even if I was mixing Motley Crue, I wouldn't want that much sub. Right. I want it to be a full mix. You yeah. don't put on an album and say, my God, it's there's so much sub. No, it's it sits where it needs to be. That's great. Well, I love the idea of your near fields giving you that studio type reference because that's really it's what you're going for. It's a well balanced record that you would want to listen to. Yeah. And you've just got huge speakers to do it on, which yeah. makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, my first experience with that was like was when I did garbage. I sat in that room for a month with a pair of near fields, recording tracks, playing them back through the profile, and listening to garbage records and comparing their mix on the record to what I was doing with the near fields. Yeah. So by the time I left that room, my desk was pretty dialed in. Now, when you were mixing garbage, was the producer playing drums for them at that point? Yeah, it was Butch Vig. Yeah. So that what was, was that like working with Butch Vig? For those of you who don't know, Butch is a world-famous record producer. He produced Nirvana's Nevermind. Do I have that right? Yeah. yeah Nevermind, so. Foo Fighters, Smashing Pumpkins. All the early 90s alternative rock stuff was his. Yeah. So what was that like working with him? That was, I don't, there's many adjectives I could use. I'm just going to say it was the high point of my career as a mixer and as a musician to work with that band. Yeah. When I found out that I was up for the gig, I'm like, oh my God, I got to get this gig. I have to get this gig with garbage. And as it turns out, their front of house guy wasn't coming back to do the gig. And he was responsible for picking the engineer. Well, he didn't know me. Mm. Wow. But we had a mutual friend in Brad Maddox. Uh. And so one day I got this thought, I'm like, you know what? I've never done this before, but I'm going to send Brad an email and say, hey, man, would you vouch for me with this guy? Because he doesn't know me. And and he, I, I'm pretty sure he did because then I ended up getting a call from Billy and we talked and I got the gig. My first experience with Butch, I had been in rehearsal for probably a week and I'm pretty much keeping to myself. I'm recording, you know, I'm talking with Billy Bush because yeah. he's all things garbage. And uh, one day he comes in, he's like, hey, Butch wants to come in and hear something. I'm like, cool. But at the same time, I'm like, oh my Lord. What? <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> like, joke. He's coming in to listen to what I've done with his band. Like, what's he going to say? And my head just starts spinning. I'm like, is he going to ask me about what I'm doing to his drums? So I have all this prepared. And the song was Paranoid that he wanted to hear. Well, there's a filtered vocal in there. And of course, I had rehearsed it. I nailed it because I was all about making sure I got all the little nuances from the record yep. in the live mix because 
those are things that you notice. Yeah. And so when that, he comes in, he sits down and I play the song and I hit that filtered vocal and he's, he's like, he jumps up, he pats me on the back. He's like, sounds great, Brad. He got this big grin on his face and he just gets up and walks out of the room. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. Don't you want to know what I'm doing to your drums? Like he didn't, he didn't ask anything. Wow. He just wanted to make sure that you cared about the music yeah, in I the guess. same way that they did when they were making the record. Yeah. That's awesome. And then, I mean, the experience that I had with them was so, I don't know, I could like satisfying, uh, yeah, like humbling. Like I felt we were still in rehearsal and Yahoo was going to come in to, to video three songs and I was to record it. So I did. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm going to hand these tracks off to them and Billy's going to mix it. And I said, and then they were done. And I said, Billy, you want these tracks? He's like, no. He's like, you're going to mix it. I'm like, what? Wow. And then inside I'm thinking, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was my first introduction into that. And I mixed those three tracks. And I think I actually finished mixing them in the back of the rider truck when we did, I don't know, it was one of those festivals down in uh, LA, like maybe it was Weenie Roast or K-Rock or one of those mm -hmm. in Irvine. And I'm sitting at the back of the truck before the show trying to finalize these mixes so Billy can put the mastering touch on them and give them to Yahoo because we're going to get on a plane to Europe right after the show. Wow. I'm back here just mixing away. And of course, you know what the back of the stage sounds like yeah. in the back of a rider truck. Yeah. And so that whole 13 months with those guys was just, it was just so memorable. Every time that I, you know, that I thought that, that I didn't expect something like after that K-Rock thing, I think they also, somebody multi-tracked the show. Well, whoever recorded it, they left the click track in the broadcast. Uh, oh, gosh. Well, right away, Billy's like, okay, that's it. No more. Nobody ever gets a feed from us, ever. I don't care who it is. If they want to mix, it's coming from you. So don't mess up. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So there was MTV a couple of times. There was, I don't know how many festivals we did. There was TV shows in Europe. Everything, either I, it came from my desk from a live show or I walked into the control room at a TV show in Europe and mixed the broadcast. That's awesome. They never oversaw anything I did. Wow. I mean, the, the I don't know. I can't, to, even when I think about it now, it's just, it's a great feeling. I bet. Well, that to, level of trust is is rare and so great at the same time. It's that's like, what just, it is. It's, it's just the to trust. know that there's that mutual trust and mutual uh, appreciation and respect. It's like, you can't ask for anything better than that. No. So did you ever geek out with Butch about drums? You know, we did a couple of times we would geek out a little bit, Yeah. but it was never like you would think. Yeah. It, it was never really, Billy was like the gearhead. Mm. Billy was the one that we would geek out with and he'd be like, okay, for this vocal effect, this is what we did in the studio. So see what you can come up with. He yeah. wouldn't tell me what they used. He just leave me to come up with it, huh. which was really cool. That's funny. I guess that it's not that surprising. I mean, you don't hear of a lot of super famous generational impacting producers worried about what the API 2500 did to the snare drum. You know, it's more about emotion and feeling and telling a story. It, yeah. 
And that's what he did with you when he came to rehearsal. It was like, great job. You're, you're doing it. You met that need for whatever he had. And he didn't give a rip about gain structure or vocal he didn't verbs care about anything. nothing. I mean, when I tell you that I would study the song from the album and then I would listen to what they were playing and how I was putting it together, I wanted to get as close as I could to the record. But obviously they're playing everything. Right. And those sounds aren't exactly like the record, right. but the mix can be structured and laid out like the record with like those filtered vocals and those delay cues on Shirley and distortion and flange and whatever else it was that happened. And I tried to capture all of that. That's a great, great lesson. That's awesome. And I will say, I'm Only Happy When It Rains is one of my favorite songs. I love that song. It's, it's such a good song. Every every night when I would walk out the front of the house to mix that show, it was just, I was just, I was sad when it ended because it was so much fun and it was so much challenge to it as a mixer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bar was set pretty high mixing a band like Garbage. Yeah. Yeah. So much creativity. So much creativity. There's so much movement in the song. Well, they were a band's band. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of those and they were definitely one of them. I can say I'm pretty, that's like the high point of my mixing career. Yeah. Not stadiums in South America with Enrique, but I mean, that's a different type of high point. Right. I mean, that's, there's nothing like that feeling. Yeah. The biggest show we did with Enrique, I think was 80,000 people in Kiev in a stadium. Wow. In the Ukraine. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, and the satisfaction you get from that, that roar of the crowd when the show starts. And I'm sitting there in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. And when Enrique whispers to the, you know, girl off the edge of the stage and you can hear what he's saying. Yeah. And the crowd just goes nuts. I mean, that's the, oh, you can't ever, (laughs) you can't ever replace that. No, you can't. What do you replace that with? That's. That's great. There's all types of levels of satisfaction in my world. That's so great. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I love that we've gotten to know you a little bit. And my my gut feeling is I want to keep talking, but we're kind of out of time. So we're going to have to have you come back if you're willing. Because I would be glad to do to, a part two because I think we just got started. Yeah, yeah we totally did. We'd, we'd love to dig into more of the console layout and workflow and that kind of stuff and how you approach some of those things. So I would be happy to share all that. It's all this, you know, I shared all of my class. We could share it right here. That'd be great. So, Brad, how can people uh, keep up with you or find out about your classes in the future when they come back? I would say probably fixingtogetmixing.com or fixingtogetmixing on Instagram Great. or even me on, on Facebook, Brad Divins or fixingtogetmixing. Okay, perfect. All right, everybody. It's been fun. Let's do it again. Let's do it. Let's do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brad. All right. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, that was great. I loved hearing Brad's perspective on a lot of stuff. Every time we talk to a big time front of house guy, I'm just, I'm so encouraged by their approaches and their stories because I feel like so much of what he said is what we try to encourage guys to do. Yeah. Turn the subs down. Maybe, maybe a lot of people need (laughs) to do that, but put the right mic in the right place, turn it till it sounds good, and don't necessarily worry about knowing every parameter of every single thing you know you're learning how to make music and so however that strikes your musical sensibility you know music needs to move us and so it's not always just about 
knobs and buttons and frequencies. It's about emotion. I resonate with that a lot. Yeah, and how tight was your butt when he was talking about uh, mixing for Butch Vig and him coming in saying he wanted to hear some tracks? Yeah, just walking in going, <laughs> hey, let me hear some stuff. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you better wear your brown pants. <laughs> wear your brown I've never heard that. Well, now you have. You have some of the best <laughs> sayings. Yesterday, uh, Kyle texted us a... Um, you know the next door, the next door <laughs> app or the next door thing, and somebody, somebody complained about their neighbor smoking meat and how the smell of dead carcass was offensive. But but Jeff yeah. has a saying. No, my phrase is, "Hey, if God had intended for us not to eat animals, He wouldn't have made them out of meat." That'll preach. <laughs> so speaking of that, what are you smoking this weekend? Uh, nothing. Yesterday, oh. well, I should. Yesterday we had. Broccoli salad, potato salad, pasta salad, all at the same time. I guess, I guess Friday is salad day at the field. Well, Jenny house. made a bunch of like cheap meal prepped, and we had a bunch of stuff, and that was what was left over. So we're like, it's left overnight. So it was a bag of Lay's and a bunch of salads. So <laughs> well, every now and, and then, I need redemption. So you need some animal protein in your. In I want to do some beef ribs. I haven't done that yet. Ooh, that would be good. We like short ribs. Uh. No, just be like a rack of beef ribs. Okay. That's what I want to try. Uh, yeah, I've never done that either. I've done pork ribs, but not beef. We have a youth pastor at the church who won't eat anything, but like his hamburger is bread, meat, bread. So it's okay. worse than like ketchup only. Like it is. It's no condiments. No, it, it is. Nothing. It's, it's super simple. And this He's like 30-year-old man who eats this way. Well, the youth department thought it'd be funny to shoot these videos of him trying other food so oh that's so funny. they took him to chipotle and got a burrito and he is eating this burrito and gagging over a chipotle burrito loaded it up with everything well yeah of course well this week's Corn, video sour cream salsa they took him to makuni sushi oh. and he's like heaving into the trash can <laughs> for the like the best sushi in the world all right, you guys need to understand, you've heard us talk about this place a couple of times on the podcast. There is no better sushi experience outside of Tokyo than Makuni. I mean, it's yeah. amazing. It like every bite that you put in your mouth is like, oh my gosh, this is a party in my mouth and everyone's invited. Yeah, it's like meat butter just melts. It's it's crazy. Yeah. So so, so next week. The fact that he was gagging really bothers me, by yeah. the way. Well, in the, the end of the video, they were teasing like, hey, join us next week for In-N-Out. So like, that's a big deal for him <laughs> to have like animal style French fries, which In-N-Out has like a secret menu and animal style French fries are just French fries with cheese, the secret sauce and grilled onions. That's all it is. So they're yeah. like, well, what else should we do? So I, I told him, I'm like, how about I smoke some deer meat? So I think we're going to shoot a video of him trying some deer meat off the trigger. Perfect. Yeah. Well, if he gags at that, we then got he's problems. fired. Yeah. So that's what I'll be doing this week. Great. Well, well, that's cool. Well, once again, you've uh, spent another perfectly good hour listening to us blather on about stuff, but we really appreciate we it. We do. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. We do appreciate it. Um, so let's remind everybody real quick what's coming up next on now if, if you're not a subscriber for mxu now then you're not a mixer there amen that'll yeah, preach it's 
now as low as $15 a month. It's for $99 a month. Your whole team can get unlimited license. We have a new website, a new web app with features specifically designed for your teams, which you're going to hear way more about things like checklists and upload your audio recordings and timestamp comments to them and different wonderful things that I shouldn't even said. Our product team's freaking out that I let that stuff out right now, but it's okay. Yeah. Lots of cool Just stuff. Letting cats out of mm-hmm. bags. Mm-hmm. So, but it's coming, it's coming very yep. soon. I heard a rumor that it might even be this week. Mm-hmm, so Friday. that's again, crazy. Can't wait. Well, thank you all. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Lee, have a good one. Bye. Hey, you too. See ya.